not be a control freak and give up control earlier. Not give up control as in I've seen people who go, oh, I'm going to employ somebody who's an expert and then just let them do it. No, that's not what I mean. I mean, as an entrepreneur, we're the first time we start a business, we do everything, right? We, we, we stand at the photocopier, we make the copies, we make the coffee, etc. We no, tend to, no. Go ahead. you know, we, we tend to do all that. The, the key to being successful is doing what you do best, which generally as entrepreneurs generating business. This is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, a serial entrepreneur who's grown several startups in the seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademark. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com and we're always here to help. Now, today we have another great uh, guest on the podcast, Rail Bricker. And uh, Rail is uh, graduated with an engineering degree. Didn't know what an engineer did then, um, but uh, graduated the degree, uh, went to work for a mine underground for a couple of years and left there and went back to business school or went to business school. Um, also joined a small marketing firm, started his own business as a management consultant. That business evolved into more of an educational services for South Africans, got listed on the stock exchange, um, then went into uh, venture capitalism um, in South Africa and Australia, worked for a um, venture fund for uh, someone for else in Australia for a period of time, then went back on his own, did some loan or mortgage loans, then uh, did presentations and teaching to people about the mortgage industry, wrote a book, did certified public speaking, spent uh, and then spends his time kind of between the mortgage business as well as public speaking. So with that much as an introduction and a, a quick walkthrough of your journey, welcome on the podcast, Rail. Yeah, thank you, Devin, and uh, good morning from Perth, Western Australia. All right, a good evening or good afternoon slash almost evening from uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. So, well, awesome. Well, it's, uh, excited to have you on. So, I gave kind of the quick introduction to a, a much longer journey. So, let's dive in a bit and tell us a little bit about your journey. So, the journey itself was probably at the age of fourteen. I knew I was going to be an entrepreneur. I didn't know why or what and what business I would be in. But I always, my first job started when I was 14, working in an electronics shop, and people came in and asked, uh, they were buying car radios. So in the days before all the radios were beautifully fitted into the dashes of all the cars, when we fitted radios into cars, and I, in that typical entrepreneur in me went, okay, no problem, come over to my house this afternoon and I'll fit it in your car for you. And so that was the start of my entrepreneurial journey at 14. The key lesson out of that one was that I have to do things that use my brain, not my hands. Um, I love, you know, fiddling in my shed at home and doing woodwork, mm. but I wouldn't call myself a tradesman. And so I learned very early on that whatever business I go into needs to use my brain. So, yeah, it's been, it's been a fantastic journey. It's been, it's been driven by a quote from my late father who said to me, um, one day when he retires, and unfortunately he never got to retire, he died when he was 59. He said one day when he retires, he wants 40 years experience, not one year, 40 times over. And so mm -hmm. I took that to heart at a young age and I went, just grab life. Life is too short. Life is too fragile. I mean, the pandemic of 2020 and 2021 has shown us that. 
So basically, you've got to grab life and do things. And that's what I've always done. And so, so yeah, you know, started the education business in South Africa. I'll put that into a context of that time. Nelson Mandela was released in February 1990. So I'd been on the mines. Uh, I'd worked on the mines underground, 6,000 foot. And I was too young and probably arrogant <laughs> to understand what I was learning. And that's probably the best advice I give young entrepreneurs is grab every experience and try and work out what you're learning. Because I was there, I was put into a management role at age 21 on the mine, 5,000 staff. But only when I was 30 did I actually appreciate the lessons I learned at 21. And so that, that was part of the challenge. So I put a, started putting all that together. In 1990, we started management consultancy. Now, there's a flaw in that. We were young MBA graduates. We thought that it was the new South Africa. Nelson Mandela was released. There was this hunger for stuff. We had just never run a business. And so we were sitting there going, okay, great. We'll go and tell businesses how to run their businesses, but we'd never run a business. And so the little problem with that. Um, and yeah, and so that part of that em emerged or evolved into this education business. Now, was it planned? No. Did we overthink it? No. The book, my book is called Dive In, and that's exactly what it was. We just dived in and said, what have we got to lose by doing it? So maybe um, just diving in, or diving in, but one question that uh, comes up. So you, you, first of all, you graduated, you went and worked for a, a mine under, or for a mine for a couple yeah. of years. And then after that, was that when you went back to MBA school? I went to business school. So yeah, I, I left the mine, went to business school. And um, did I go to business school because I wanted to learn to be a manager? No, I wanted to learn about all the things I never learned in engineering. So mm. I always knew that I was never going to be rising up the corporate ladder, waiting for the next person to die so I could get a promotion. I always knew that. I, but so I went to the MBA and I, and I think MBAs today have evolved that today you can do MBAs that are entrepreneurially focused, you know, go to business school and do that. But in, in, in 32 years ago, when I did my MBA, that's dating me, but the, the gray hair, I guess, shows a little bit for that. Um, the MBA then was designed to make corporate managers. It wasn't designed for entrepreneurs. But yeah, mm -hmm. so I went off and, and, and interestingly, I found an old farewell card when I left the mine, I found this farewell card the other day. And it's interesting because I'd forgotten about it. And the farewell card said in it, when you come back to buy Anglo-American, please remember us, we'll still be here. And, and that was exactly why I didn't want to be in the corporates. Because these guys had no ambition except to be in their job and get a promotion and come to work every day 20 years later. Now, Anglo-American that I worked for was the largest listed company in South Africa at the time. Largest, mm. One of the largest mining houses in the world. So for the team members to say, when you come back and buy the company, they obviously knew that I was going out to be an entrepreneur. Um, so, so you started the business. So now you did, so you <clears throat> went and you know, said, okay, I'm going to go back to business school to learn the things I didn't learn in engineering school. You come out of business school and, you, and then how did, you know, what made you decide to go into marketing? Cause I think you said that you joined a small yeah, so marketing firm. Oh, I joined, I joined a software company, okay. which was a transition. So it was a software company, but I was the marketing manager. Hmm. So it was the first time that ever employed a marketing person, but, and, and even today, and, and I have to skip, you know, 
30 years almost ahead, I speak at a lot of technology conferences today. So software conferences, you know, agile scrums, etc. But I talk about management, not about technology. And exactly then, you know, even 30 years ago, I joined this company because I had a tech background and I can understand the technology, but I went into a marketing role in the business. So um, basically they had never marketed that kind of a typical, by the way, IT startup, great technology, zero marketing, like, like no idea. We'll just build a great product and the world will come running to us. And, and, and they'd suddenly realized that they had a great product, but the world wasn't running to them. They needed to actually do something about telling the world about it. And that was my role there. So I was there for almost two years and then decided to, to go out on my own into my management consultancy that became an education business um, about a year later. Hmm. So that's, that, that's part of that journey. And then we grew rapidly. Um, right place at the right time. I cannot stress that as much thinking as you do about any business, the, the real growth for us was being in the right place at the right time. It was the year Nelson Mandela was released um, in South Africa. It was, there was this major upsurge in the need for young black students who had been previously disadvantaged to get an education. They were coming out of school. And I don't know the American GPA equivalent, but they were coming out of school clutching a certificate to their chest. And that said, they'd finished school. But that certificate had an aggregate mark of 35% across six subjects. Now, that's not exactly, you know, high academic standard. And we were taking these students through a three-year diploma, like a junior college, over a four-year period. So we knew that they needed a lot of catch-up time. And we built a program that took four years to give them a three-year diploma equivalent. Um, and that grew rapidly, but again, right place, right time, and pretty aggressive young guys with nothing to lose. That's the worst competitor you can ever have. Somebody no, who has nothing to one lose. Question I, no, and I, and I definitely agree. You know, somebody that's ambitious, has time, and has nothing to lose is definitely a good place to be if you're the person doing it and a, a, a difficult competitor to compete with. But what made you guys, you know, kind of, you say you know, the business evolved into educational services. How did that evolution oh, so, uh, was it intentional was it hey hey we want to get into education it'll be a great business or you fell into or kind of what pushed you in that direction to evolve there no so so at the time so so a few things happened in the management consultancy so we went to our friends who we did our mbas with so my business partner did his mba at another university and we went to 10 friends and said look we want to add credibility and i use the words credibility because it's just when you laugh at it today, it was the reverse of credibility. But we want to add credibility to our business. Can we add your names to the bottom of our letterhead as consultants? So when we went out and pitched our management consultancy, it was myself and my partner, 25 or 26-year-old MBA grads, but with 10 other MBA graduates with all different backgrounds on our letterhead. So we looked like this massive organization. Hmm. Uh, we won, we actually won a contract um, with the water corporation at the time and the electricity corporation, so big government bodies. Um, and it wasn't big contracts, but nevertheless, it gave us a bit of momentum. But those two contracts finished and we had no idea what we were going to do. And we were talking to a body, a certification body that gave out this diploma in marketing called the Institute of Marketing Management. 
And they looked at our letterhead and saw all these people that we supposedly had and said, you guys are so well qualified. Why don't you start a school? Why don't you teach our diploma? And we went, okay, nothing to lose. Let's try that. And so that's exactly, you know, but we understood that the political climate was there, that there was this need for education. Hmm. And then we went, we have no money. So let's find clever ways of marketing. And that's how we grew. Um, and so we started in 1990, we had 20 students in the late 1990. And by 1996, we had six campuses and 4,000 students. That's awesome. That's a pretty uh, great growth and definitely uh, showed a lot of success. So now I think that at one point you guys took that business and that's the one you put on the stock exchange. Yeah, and, so uh, we, we decided that the next phase of growth for us was to get access to capital. And we didn't have access to capital. So you either had equity or, or script, you know, shares or capital. And we didn't have access to that. We were earning good money out of the business ourselves. We were having a good life, having lots of holidays. But, and we'd put in management. We had 160 staff, academic staff at that point. But we just knew that we needed to go to the next level. And so I had met... A, a guy who owned a computer training business that was listed on the stock exchange. I'd met him about five years before and or no more than that, probably seven years before that. And I literally picked up the phone to him and said, let's have a conversation because I had heard that his business, computer-based training, his technology was a little bit dated, a little bit old, and the business was floundering a bit. So we literally went to them and said, we have this education face-to-face -face business. It's a hot entity right now. You know, let's reverse into your business. Give us a big chunk of the equity. And then we'll go out and acquire other education businesses to do a group, to build a group. And that's exactly what we did. So knowing nothing about mergers and acquisitions, we went in, we did this deal. Um, my partner and I then with the board of this new entity, which we were on, did nine acquisitions over the next 18 months. And the share price went from 90 cents to 14 rand. So 90 cents to $14 in terms of growth, uh, you know, massive growth. Um, I only had a year's contract. So I left them a year later. My partner had a three-year contract. They didn't want both of us. So he stayed on for three years. I stayed on for a year. Um, and then I left and went out on my own and found my niche in venture capital for the next five years. Oh, cool. No, definitely. Uh... Sounds cool. Now you went to venture capital for a period of time and did that, um, you know, in South Africa and Australia and other places. Now, when or then you uh, when you came back after doing that for a period of time, you went into mortgage loans. Is that right? So yeah. So again, that was. So I came to Australia, and I'm a networker. So just just to put that into a context, what that means when I pick up my mobile phone, and and a friend of mine teaches networking skills. And I'd never really thought about this until I was in one of his seminars. And I, I, he said, take out your phone and, and see how many people you have in your phone. And so I don't know if you've ever done that exercise. It's an interesting exercise to do. So most people in the room said, oh, I've got 700 people in my phone, 1,000 people in my phone. At that point, I had 11,500 people in my phone. And I went, okay, I actually am a networker. That's what I do. And so... I, I had networked before coming to Australia. I had met a guy, met a girl, met a guy, um, came to Australia, went to these people, didn't know who they were, just said, look, help me get a job. I need to get a job, learn about Australia for a little bit. 
And one of them came, a great guy the name of David Schwartz, and I recognize him in the book, in my book. And, and I said to him, you know, I went to visit David. It was a Friday morning. I'd been in Perth about two weeks. And I went to his factory. I didn't even know who he was, what his business was. And I said, David, please help, help me, introduce me to some people. This is my background. And, he, and I'd been to a few of the employment agencies who went, you don't have a career. You've like done all these things. Like, how can we find you a job? What can you do in a corporate? And I went, well, I've done all these things. I can do anything, you know. Typical, I was in my mid-30s, you know, still, still suffering from, you know, the, the, the hangover of doing well in South Africa. And so David Fetchy, cool, that was Friday morning, Sunday afternoon. And I, and I have to admit today, 20 years later in Perth, I still do that for people arriving in the city. So what he taught me 20 years ago has followed on to what I do today. And so he fetched me on a Sunday afternoon, took me, said, I've got a friend who might be able to help you. Fetched me, took me to this friend's house in this very, very Lani suburb, very upmarket suburb. And we sat there for five hours on a Sunday afternoon talking about venture capital. And I left there and they said, by tomorrow morning, they'll make me an offer to be investment manager of their fund. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it was an amazing opportunity. I literally started working there three weeks after I got to a new country. Um, a year and a half later, we took that fund. We raised 22 million and listed it on the um, Australian Stock Exchange. So we did a front door listing this time. We wrote a prospectus. We raised capital. And we went to a front door listing and I'm still a shareholder in that fund today. The big thing is they wanted me to move to Sydney and I went, nah, that's like moving, you know, con con you know, in the U S context, that's moving from LA to New York. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that distance that you're moving. And I went, nah, I, I actually enjoy the life. In fact, it, it's probably more like comparing moving from uh, San Diego as a city to New York. You know, small town, reasonably good facilities, but not, didn't want to move to Sydney. I said, I'm going out on my own. And I started going out and finding small clients who needed investors, needed venture capital. And I was helping them structure their businesses for venture capital. And then they said, oh, you know, we actually need some debt as well. We need some loans. And I went, okay, I'll find out how to get you a loan. You know, typical approach to life. And, sure. and so I found out that in our state, in Western Australia, you had to get a license, okay? You need a license for everything. <laughs> and I had to get a license as a finance broker. So I went in and got a license as a finance broker. And mm. I started doing their commercial loans. And then they said, oh, you did such a good job with our business. Can you help us with our home loan? And I went, sure, I'll help you with your home loan. And that was 2001, uh, 20 years later, 2021. Um, I still own that business. It's done three, just over 3 billion dollars of mortgages, both mostly residential, but mostly, uh, mostly residential, a little bit of commercial um, in that space. So that's how that mortgage business totally evolved, exactly like my education business. It was a conversation mm -hmm. that led to thinking about doing something else. And so in, in none of those cases did I overthink it. I, I, I make that point about everything in life. It just, sometimes you have to look at the opportunity. Not, it's not shiny object syndrome. You know, I did think about it, but I didn't overanalyze it. Now, one question, because I think the, the last part of your journey, you also talked about you've got into, you've written a book and get into um, certified speaking as a profession as well. Yeah. And, so, and then you kind of uh, balance both the kind of the, 
mortgage, um, investing and those type of things and the loans and then also doing public speaking. So how did you get into deciding you're going to write a book and doing uh, speaking as a so, Well, I mean, there are a couple. So everyone has this momentary event in their lives. So typical of somebody who's very driven. In um, 2012, I decided to do start doing triathlons. Now, I was a state hockey player um, in my 20s, broke my kneecaps, had operations on my legs. I've always been fit and healthy, but decided to do something competitive. So I started doing triathlons in 2012, uh, finished a season of triathlons, decided to run a marathon before I turned 50. I had a year to go before I turned 50, thought it's a good ambition, let's go and run a marathon. But every 10 or 12 kilometers, so seven or eight miles in, the, in my training, I would just go and feel that I had incredible pain in my neck, back of my neck. And I thought, look, I'm a big unit. I'm a big boy. I'm, I'm broad and, and, and strong. I'm not really built like a marathon runner. Um, and I went, okay, something, you know, go to physiotherapy, get my neck clicked out, whatever. It's all good. And my mother-in-law and my, my local doctor said, there's something not right. You're very pale. You're just not looking good. You've got a friend who's a, radio, a radiologist. Go and have a scan of your heart and just see that there's nothing wrong. So I went and had a scan and didn't even think anything further. Jumped on a plane with my wife to Singapore with three other couples. And we went away for a few days on a, on a, uh, on a holiday with, with two, three other couples. And while we were there, the doctor phoned me and had a conversation and said, don't panic. That's the last thing you ever want to hear. Okay. When the doctor phones and says, don't panic. Okay. He said, don't panic. That's um, the first thing you do is obviously you panic. Yeah, panic, so. right? Don't panic. Go down to the pharmacy and buy a big box of aspirin and start taking three aspirin a day. Um, don't go for any long runs. Uh, and then the joke of it all, I'm assuming this is a PG, is, 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 an, is not a PG rated show. He said, um, don't take any Viagra. Okay. So, um, Fair enough. Yeah, there's a reason behind that actually because it lowers your blood pressure and then if mm. you have a heart attack and then they try to lower your blood pressure again that's when people die so it was interesting but it was funny at the time he um yeah so that life-changing moment i ended up having two cardiac stents um and today i'm fitter and stronger than i was seven years ago so but that made me focus on what was important in life like really i'd been running like a like a madman uh, doing lots of stuff. I, my mortgage business was flying high. I was number three in the country at the time. And, and three in the country in a city where our property prices were half of the other cities. So you had to do double the work to write the same number of mortgages. So, you know, it, it, we're working damn hard, long hours. Mm. Anyway, uh, I had the stance. I decided to do uh, different things. And then in 2015, the mortgage industry asked me to speak at their conference on how to build a mortgage business because I topped over 2 billion in mortgages at that point. And I went to the conference. I did two breakout sessions at the conference. Packed, they were bringing in extra chairs while I was speaking for people to hear what I had to say. And I went, that was a lot of fun. I've always loved speaking. So just my, my, my mortgage business was built by me being on stage. So I worked with a number of property developers. I went around the country, around Southeast Asia, um, talking to people about buying properties and retiring on those properties. And so I'd, I'd sold a billion dollars of mortgages from stage. So I love being on stage. I love being the speaker. I got on the plane after that conference and I went, there's a book in that. So I wrote the book. I mean, 
didn't write it on the plane. I wrote 2,000 words on my iPad on the plane, which is pretty hard when you don't have a tactile keyboard, I have to say. Um, I spent nine months then writing the book, and I made a decision almost at that point that I wanted to become a professional speaker. And in 2016, I got my, my first international opportunity to speak in, in, in Whistler, in, outside Vancouver, um, at a mortgage conference. And that was when I knew that that was what I wanted to pursue. I still kept the mortgage business. I still worked there. I still, I still helped the team there. I still see clients. I have four and a half thousand clients. You, you're in the, you know, you're a, you, you're in, in a business that has clients. Those individuals want to see you. They don't want to see your team. And so um, I still see clients, but my team handle all the paperwork and stuff behind me now. And in 2019, I became a certified speaking professional of which there are about 1500 worldwide. So about 120. Group, so yeah. So well, that, um, that's a great walkthrough of your journey. And that kind of brings us up to where you're at today, which is, you know, definitely it's kind of been one where kind of, you know, in one sense, it's been, you know, weaving in and out and yet there's a kind of that common thread throughout. So that was definitely a fun walkthrough um, through your journey. So now as we wrap up or wrap towards the end of the podcast, there's always a great transition. So I always love we after we hear the journey to ask a couple of questions. So why don't we jump to those now? True. So yeah. the first question I always ask is, Along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what did you learn from it? So the worst business decision was actually when I left the venture fund and I was out on my own doing a bit of venture capital work and, and started the mortgage business, a friend phoned me from South Africa and said, I found this amazing product. It comes out of Germany. It's a storage system for CDs and, and DVDs. And I said, great. And, I, and he sent me a sample of it and I investigated it. And it, it was very clever at the time. If you think about 20 years ago, we didn't have hard drives, portable hard drives as backups. All your backups on your computers were DVD driven or CD driven. And so you needed somewhere to store these things in a logical way that you could find them. And this was like a, a binder system that had special CD covers that slotted in and you could fit 20 and have them on your shelf. And it's a really cool, clever system. Mm. I flew to Germany. Um, I flew to Germany. I bought with me, I bought it like a thousand or $2,000 worth of stock while I was in Germany, brought it back in a, in a suitcase to Australia, spoke to five people, you know, typical, did a lot of extensive market research, spoke to five people and they thought, wow, what a product. I then ordered $80,000 worth of stock in a container load um but i had no idea i hadn't sold it yet mm. and and then i went out to try and sell it and i realized that none of the big chains so the office chains you know the office supply chains which was really the target audience wanted to deal with a single operator they wanted to deal with somebody who has multiple product lines <clears throat> can deliver to store on a national basis all the other things that i had never considered um I eventually gave that $80,000 worth of stock to a friend who was down and out um, and he sold them to a $2 store for $5,000. And I told him to keep the $5,000 because he needed the money. Uh, oh. And that was like six years later. So the big lesson out of that was two things. One is do some, don't overanalyze, but do some more market research than asking five friends. But more importantly, the clever product 
is not necessarily the best product. In other words, it was almost too clever for itself. And the third one was that I knew from my own self, I needed to sell services and not products. The same way I knew I couldn't do a job that needed me to use my hands all the time. I learned from that, that I needed to sell services. My mortgage business was services. The education business in South Africa, the venture capital business were all service-based. And so that's, mm -hmm. that was the key lesson I learned, but it took me $80,000 to learn that. Well, it's uh, it, that is an expensive education. That's probably more than the, the degrees you got, but it was a good education nonetheless. And some of the times, yeah. though, those those mistakes that sting the most are also the ones you learn from the most. So now, as we jump to the second question, it dovetails right into what uh, what you just touched on. But if you're now talking to somebody that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what'd be the one piece of advice you give them? Um, is to is to not be a control freak and give up control earlier. Not give up control, as in I've seen people who go, oh, I'm going to employ somebody who's an expert and then just let them do it. No, that's not what I mean. I mean, as an entrepreneur, with the first time we start a business, we do everything, right? We, we, we stand at the photocopier, we make the copies, we make the coffee, etc. We no, tend to, no. Go ahead. you know, we, we tend to do all that. The, the key to being successful is doing what you do best, which generally as entrepreneurs generating business, being the front person out there getting the business through the door and leave the back office stuff, which is what I call the $10, leave the $10 an hour tasks to your staff and you do the $500 an hour revenue. And if you focus your whole life around that, your decision of when to employ staff um, becomes a lot easier and a lot quicker to make. No, and I and I definitely agree with you. I mean, there's there's a, as an entrepreneur, you have a tendency, first of all, to think you're the smartest one in the room, and you also want to or have a, probably a type A personality and always want to get things done the way you want to get them done, and and yet you know that oftentimes can hold the business back because you're doing tasks that while yes you can do them, you probably do them very well, aren't the ones that utilize your specific skill set, the things that you can grow the business the best and make the the biggest impact on the business. So I like in the sense of you know it's not that. You don't, you just simply turn over the reins and don't do, run your business anymore, but focusing on the things that you can drive the most value to your business. And then those other things are giving, are handing the reins over or giving people those tasks and then just managing them as opposed to trying to do it all yourself as it's certainly a great piece of advice. Well, as we wrap up, if people want to reach out to, they want to connect up to you, they want to be a uh, customer, they want to be an employee of you, you know, they want to hire you for a speaking gig, they want to hire you to help with their loans, they want to be an investor in any of your ventures, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out, contact you and find out more? Well, the easiest way is rail at railbricker.com, very, very simple. And there's a lot of information on the railbricker.com website. There's the Excellence Podcast website, which is also linked with the railbricker.com. Um, but I'm on uh, LinkedIn mostly. LinkedIn and Instagram, Facebook, any of the social media, not Twitter. I'm not a Twitter fan, but I am there, but I don't check it as often. But LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach out to me or at rail at railbricker.com. And if anyone wants a, a copy of the book, dive in, Lessons Learned Since Business School, um, I'll send uh, you the link. It's railbricker.com slash free book, and they can download a free PDF copy of my book. Awesome. Definitely generous to 
um, offer the, the book and definitely encourage people to, to take a look or to, to take a look and uh, get the PDF version as well as uh, the full ver or the, the hardback version as well, depending on how you like to read it. But uh, thank you again, Rail, for coming on the podcast. It's been a fun. It's been a pleasure. Now, for all of you the listeners, if you have your own journey to tell and you, uh, and you want to be a guest on the podcast, feel free to go to inventiveguest.com. Glad to be on the podcast. Um, two more things. As a listener, one, make sure to click subscribe to your podcast player so you know all of our awesome episodes come out. And two, leave us a review so other people can find out about all of our awesome episodes. And last but not least, if you ever need help with patents, trademarks, or anything else, feel free to reach out to us. Just go to strategymeeting.com and uh, grab some time with us at Cat. Thank you again, Rail, and uh, wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thank you very much, and I look forward to the next journey or, or two or three or four. All right.